All right. Welcome to episode two of The Riser. Ted Wyman, Post Media, Winnipeg Sun. I'm Greg Strong, Canadian Press. And later on, we'll be speaking with Sportsnet's Shai Davidi. Ted, how was your holidays? Well, hey, good to see you and Happy New Year, man. Yeah, um, Happy New Year. And honestly, yeah, the, the, thanks for asking about the holidays. It was great. Uh, it's been a, I'm in Winnipeg and it's just been a terrific winter so far. It's been, there's barely any snow. It's been warm, spending time outside. I mean, it's not Florida, but it's pretty darn nice to be able to do that. And um, I'm, I'm, you know, it's just great time with family. How about yourself? Yeah, it's pretty quality uh, Christmas time, even though we didn't have much snow here in the Toronto area. Uh, yeah, we had a nice, it was fairly quiet Christmas and they uh, got together with some buds for New Year's. So uh, all good. Had a bit of a kink in the neck uh, due to some uh, squash play, Ted. Uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Rob from Murray Family Chiropractic here in Newmarket. Helped me out and got me feeling tipped up here ahead of episode two. Hey, right on. Yeah. <laughs> well done. You know, I was wondering, Greg, as we were thinking about doing this podcast today, I was just thinking, you know, we didn't really look back at 2023 yet. And and I got to say, it was quite the year for sports in this country. And I just wonder what you thought maybe were some of the, the most memorable moments of uh, of the year. Yeah, I mean, there are several, uh, a few that stand out, of course, we we'll go way back to early 2023, the World Juniors winning gold. Connor Bedard, uh, of course, really emerging for a lot of hockey fans at that tournament, leading Canada to a gold medal. And we'll touch on the 2024 edition of that uh, team later on here, Ted. But, uh, you know, there's some highs, there's some lows. I thought the uh, the Toronto Blue Jays were a, a really significant disappointment. 89-win um, season, crashed out in two games in Minnesota. And, of course, we'll talk to our guest, Shai Davidi, about that in a little bit. Uh, and then the NHL, of course. Uh, we had uh, some Canadian teams that looked like they were going to make a run, and it didn't quite happen. What about yourself? Again. Again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I looked at this a bit and and I've got uh, an interesting opinion on this one, I think. But, you know, it's funny because Nick Taylor's great putt was in this year. The Canadian Open, what an incredible story that was. Um, Canada has success in FIBA basketball. Um, the tennis women won the Billie Jean Cup, uh, Billie Jean King Cup. Christine Sinclair played her last game and that was pretty darn exciting. Uh, you know, a great moment in sports. But you know, I'm a CFL guy and I cover that Canadian Football League and have for years and I've always liked that league. And I thought the Montreal Alouettes win over the Blue Bombers in the Grey Cup was pretty spectacular. That was a great football game, an amazing ending, a great story for a guy like Cody Fajardo, who's just been beaten around for years in the CFL and was dumped by the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. And well, what happens? He and his former offensive coordinator from Saskatchewan, who was also fired, Jason Moss, they win the Grey Cup and an, an upset and very uh, sad for Blue Bombers fans, but uh, really a great moment uh, of Canadian sports this year, in my opinion. Oh, 100%. I mean, early on in 2023, I mean, the Alouettes, it, it looked grim. They didn't and, have an owner. They didn't have a coach. Yeah, and there they go. They uh, have a you know a decent regular season, get into the playoffs, and the old cliche, right? Anything can happen once you get there. Who would have thought they would have destroyed Toronto like that at BMO Field and then keep on rolling and knock off the favored Blue Bombers in the championship game? It's quite a run. Absolutely. That's, uh, and, and it was a really good year for the CFL in general, in terms of growth in the markets in BC and Montreal and Toronto. And I think they're going to be looking forward to trying to carry that momentum forward into 2024. 
Very good. Well, without further ado, Ted, let's bring on our guest. He is a longtime sports media veteran, a baseball writer. He's worked for the Canadian Press and at Sportsnet, where he is currently a television analyst, baseball columnist. He's also an author, and he teaches at a college in the Toronto area. Please welcome Shai Davidi. What's up, guys? Shai, how are you, buddy? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Ready, uh, ready to jump into 2024 and get it going. Well, great to have you on. It's been uh, it's been an interesting off season, and of course, we are keen to chat about the Toronto Blue Jays and Major League Baseball. But here on the riser, we like to go behind the curtain a little bit, if we can, with our guests. And perhaps some baseball fans may not know that you uh, spent several years at the National Wire Service covering a variety of sports, and we were roommates together. A little fun fact here at the 2010 Vancouver Olympics, where you covered long track speed skating. Shai, can you take us back to that Shawnee Davis, Denny Morrison time in early 2010 when you were crushing the speed skating beat? Oh, man. Uh, I remember the the story that got the biggest play. Uh, what was it? There was some sort of, I'm trying to remember the details now because it was a long time, but there was some sort of controversy with Stephen, involving Stephen Colbert and Shawnee Davis. And I managed to get some sort of glib comment from Shawnee Davis about the whole thing and that turned into the biggest thing that I wrote the the entire Olympics that and uh chasing around uh the ice resurfacing machine issues that they had at the oval in uh in Richmond BC so they had a they had a deal a sponsorship deal with some manufacturer it was not a Zamboni and it did not work well. And they had to interrupt one of the events. Uh, I remember sitting in the front row of the press gallery there and the Dutch speed skating coaches were just circling around on the ice, shaking their heads, bemoaning how unacceptable it was. And they had to ship the Zamboni from the ice resurfacing, resurfacing machine in Calgary on a flatbed truck overnight to get it to Richmond and have it arrive in time uh, for the events the next day. And so there was like uh, the, the whole event was being held up and there's uh, this flatbed truck arriving into the Oval in Richmond, carrying a Zamboni strapped all over the place, driving through the Rocky Mountains uh, to get this uh, to get the event going there. So it was uh, it was a lot of fun. The Canadians had a pretty successful run. There was a Christine Nesbitt gold. There was bronze for Clara Hughes. There was a silver. Uh, there was another gold for the uh, for the men's team pursuit for Denny Morrison redeeming himself after a rough go in the individual portions and questioning some of the stuff with his coaches. Uh, there was a lot of drama for long track speed skating in uh, in a short week and a half, but uh, it was a ton of fun. As was uh, rooming with you, Greg, where our our condo became the the hangout for the People's Wire Service uh, staffers gathered there. Uh, as we found the the bars closed early, but our place always shut down late. Fantastic, fond memories from that uh, that roadie to Vancouver, and those are uh, those are some great stories. I forgot all about the uh, ice resurfacing. That is classic stuff. Shai, I wanted to ask you, uh, you spent several years writing baseball for the wire service in addition to other stories. When you moved to Sportsnet just over a decade ago, you obviously took on more television duties, more broadcast stuff, more radio hits, that kind of thing. What was that transition like for you as far as the challenge of focusing mainly on print to now incorporating that TV and radio stuff into your skill set? 
Well, I was pretty fortunate in that I'd done a little bit of that while I was still at the Canadian press. And Jamie Campbell at the time had started a weekend roundtable with a few reporters, myself, uh, Jeff Blair, who would eventually come to join us uh, at Sportsnet, and uh, uh, Richard Griffin was part of it. Uh, Jordan Bastian of MLB.com, who's now covering the Chicago Cubs, uh, was was part of it. Ian Harrison, Associated Press, he was uh, on it on occasion as well. And that gave me a few reps and a little bit of practice. And I think that was uh, a bit of a springboard for me to end up at Sportsnet because they, I guess they liked what I was doing there and uh, combined that with my writing, they thought I could do that. But learning to do it on an everyday basis where, you know, you're, you know, writing in itself as a full-time job and then TV in itself can be a full-time job. And then combining the two really was a matter of understanding how to organize my time, but also organize my thoughts because you have to display them differently or share them in different ways on the different mediums. Certainly in writing, you can go into a lot of depth and where I think I struggled, especially initially, was trying to condense my thoughts into a more TV-friendly uh, cadence as opposed to my my desires usually to give people all the information and you just can't do that on television. So uh, that was a bit of a learning curve, but thankfully uh, a lot of people at Sportsnet were really good with me, really patient with me, poured into me advice and uh, and, and 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 patience basically, uh, and gave me the reps. And you know, over reps, you start to f- you learn things, you figure things out, and uh, you know, practice. I guess in in a sense, uh, I wouldn't say perfect in my case, but practice makes better at least. And uh, that's certainly been a focus of mine over the years. Shai, how did you get into the business in the first place, into media? Did you grow up wanting to be a sports writer? Like I knew when I was ten years old. It's weird, but that's. I always wanted that, even when I was delivering papers as a kid. How about yourself and and how did you get into it? And did you have to pay a lot of dues to get to a a level where you really felt like you had sort of made it? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Similar to Ted, uh, I... I'd wanted to do it uh, since I was little, a little a news junkie from when I was young. I used to deliver Toronto Sun newspapers uh, back in the day. And that was uh, my first job in the media industry. Uh, but eventually, uh, you know, I'd also hope to be a professional athlete myself, but uh, genetics and a lack of talent clearly uh, made that, uh, made that uh, a, a, not a reality for myself uh, pretty quickly. And so I ended up uh, going to journalism school at Toronto Metropolitan University, the former, uh, formerly known as Ryerson. And uh, from there, one thing led to another. I got a part-time job while I was a student at the Canadian Press doing Agate, uh, the the former uh, ultimate entry-level job into the industry where, you know, at the time we were still collating sports, sp- sports stats by hand on a daily basis. So, you know, the slate of NHL games would... Uh, would would end. We would update the standings, uh, each line by line, doing the math ourselves, double, tri- double triple checking, doing scoring leaders, all that stuff, uh, which was a good training ground. And that led to a, a part-time job as a reporter editor. And uh, after uh, a quick stint in Japan, when there wasn't a full-time job uh, opening when, when I just done from school, uh, spot opened up and I ended up getting the job. So uh, it was pretty not necessarily a smooth path, not not a difficult one, just one that involved a lot of work, a lot of hustle. And then, you know, Canadian press with a lot of, 
a lot of late night shifts as Greg can attest to when he was doing them on the old broadcast news side. Uh, he was doing some seven to threes. I was doing some eight to fours and uh, just hanging out in the newsroom, learning from people smarter than myself and more experienced than myself and trying to find ways to get better. And then eventually an opportunity came to write some baseball and I took it and ran with it. Very good. Shai, I wanted to ask you about your duties with the Baseball Writers Association of America. You've been the uh, chapter head for the, well, you've been running the Toronto chapter for several years now. But you also had a one-year stint as the BBWA president and obviously had a chance to interact with a lot of the membership across the continent. And I'm keen to get your thoughts on the state of baseball media right now, given those interactions. Where do you think things are and, and where do you think things will go? It's an interesting question. I think that, you know, there are a lot of layers to that. I think primarily uh, our work is focused on ensuring that there's sufficient access uh, around the majors. And we dealt with a few things over the past year, nothing too major. Uh, you, know, you know, I think we're a lot of our focus over the past few years was ensuring that we got back into clubhouses coming out of the pandemic. Uh, and that happened before the 22 season. And the past couple of years have been much closer to normal, uh, which has been great. But, you know, I, I think there are a few challenges. One, our industry in general is facing a lot of attrition. There are a lot of pressures, a lot of competing media outlets. It's identifying, you know, what is a serious media outlet versus what is what are, what are people doing this as a hobby? Um, what is media? Where is media going? What? Who deserves access? I think there are a lot of discussions in and around that, and sort of what is what is fair. And we've really had to adjust to uh, a reality that's changing almost constantly. So uh, it was a, a really rewarding year being able to see everything from a holistic perspective uh, and and talk to you know, people in chapters that I hadn't gotten, that I hadn't gotten to know as well beforehand and just understanding how things work there versus how they may work in other cities and sort of what are the best practices that we can transfer one to another. Uh, so it was a, a really great experience, but, you know, I think the, I think there's tremendous work being done uh, by baseball writers across the continent, maybe at as high a level or higher than it's ever been, even in the face of, relentless industry attrition. Uh, but, you know, I, I worry about what the future may hold where, you know, there are less and less clear pathways for young journalists into these roles, and then for them to receive the kind of mentorship that I think all three of us have benefited from at different points in our career, just because the numbers aren't there the way they used to be. So I guess, you know, we've got a guy here who covers the Toronto Blue Jays in Major League Baseball and uh, is very knowledgeable about all of that. So, Shy, I want to get into some of those types of questions. And the one that's really been on my mind the most is just the Otani contract itself, just the, the enormity of it. The uh, I don't even know. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that it's even legal personally, but I haven't looked into all of that. Um, and, and then they somehow do that with all the deferred money. And then they also sign uh, Yamamoto to a to a huge contract. It, it's like how did how do teams compete with that? So I mean, uh, your thoughts on that whole situation and just how it un, uh, how it developed and what do you think it means for the future of baseball when we're seeing contracts like that? Well, I mean, there <laughs> that, that's a 
that's a, a dissertation <laughs> with all the different elements. Let's start this. I, I think first off, I know the number was jarring for a lot of people. And I think one is examining it through the present, what the present day value as opposed to the future value uh, because of all the deferments. And if you look at the present day value, it's sort of like, you know, for depending on who's calculating, say we're in the 430, $440 million range, which is where a lot of analytical values for him kind of projected him to land. Uh, but ultimately, I think for players, it's always a function of the revenue that you're able to generate. And so anytime a player can get something close to approaching the amount of revenue that he generates or he or she generates for an owner, uh, I think that's a good thing because ultimately we pay for, we pay to watch athletes. We don't pay to watch owners or executives. So uh, I think from that aspect, it's good for the game that the most elite players are being rewarded in such fashion. In terms of the deferment and is that fair and is it a loophole, Look, they everything is within the rules. It's with it's acceptable within the collective bargaining agreement. Good on the Dodgers and on Nezbolello, the creative artists agency uh, agent for uh, for Shohei Otani for coming up with that structure. Right, it's like super creative. And if you can make it work and you want to live with that deferment, that's that's great. Good for you. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, as a business, if you're willing to project out money down that far down the road. Uh, and and you know leave yourself that kind of a that kind of a tab for future years and you can handle it and the Dodgers can certainly handle it then use it to your advantage and so you know I think that you know, that's just being smart and doing everything that that you're able to uh, now I know there has been a lot of debate should there be a cap there's too much uh, disparity between clubs you know I'm not huge on the disparities and every team has its own circumstances. And, you know, I think the Tampa Bay Rays are the ultimate example of, you know, just don't complain, just be smarter, just be smarter than everybody else. And the Tampa Bay Rays are, and year after year, they keep on finding ways to be among the best teams with one of the lowest payrolls. And they are, are constantly transforming themselves and finding ways to renew and keep themselves relevant. So you can't say that it's impossible just that not everybody is as good at managing against those types of risks. Uh, and then longer term, is this a trend? Is this something that I think we'll see repeat? I don't necessarily think so because, I mean, a, a big running joke within the industry continues to be the, the Bobby Bonilla day with the Mets where they're still paying an annual uh, an annual amount on his of deferments for, on his contract. And it's going to sort of feels like it's going to continue forever. Uh, not a lot of teams want to do that. Not a lot of players are going to merit that. Not a lot of the players can also uh, afford to kick that much money down the road, right? For Shohei Otani, it doesn't matter because he's going to make as much, if not more, in endorsements. So he doesn't need the rest of that revenue. And in fact, by pushing it down the road, he offers himself a, percent, a potential tax deferment if he's collecting that salary when he no longer resides in California and instead lives somewhere where the tax rates are lower. So for a number of reasons, I think that this is unique. I mean, for Shohei Otani is a unique athlete as well. So I don't know that it's going to be a trend that we're going to be seeing en masse around the game. Uh, but, you know, the Dodgers have 
the ability to flex their muscles. They have in a number of different ways. They did, and they should, because any team should be using every advantage that, that they can. That's just the nature of competitive sports. Jay, my interactions with friends, family, colleagues in this baseball offseason have been really interesting from a Blue Jays perspective in that the amount of vitriol is off the charts. People just simply didn't seem to like the 2023 edition of the Blue Jays, people I'm interacting with, and have been frustrated so far in the offseason. Have your interactions with friends, family, people are texting you, wondering what's going on. Have they been the same? Have you noticed that intensity that perhaps wasn't there in previous years? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's really understandable in a lot of ways, right? Because the this was a really frustrating team in a sense because they were so close. So many games are like hit away um, or a play away and it just doesn't happen. And you're like, why is this team not winning 100 games with this pitching staff and this lineup the way that it is? Or why is it so hard for them to score runs? Why do they continually struggle with runners in scoring position? And why is this roster that looks so much better than mediocre uh, from an offensive standpoint, just completely middle of the road? And I think watching that 162 times, it's, it's maddening right? Because it just doesn't make sense. Like this group should be so much better than it was. And you're seeing, you, you, you're as, as the season's going along, you're seeing this amazing pitching staff come together, one of the best in team history, uh, one of the best in baseball, and they're just not able to leverage it. So I think that's where a lot of the frustration happens. And then you get to the playoffs. They only score once in the two games against the Twins. And then there's the decision on Jose Barrios to bring uh, to pull him and bring in Yusei Kikuchi and it's it's a really hard decision to stomach you know Kikuchi ends up giving up the runs but you know it's really through no fault of his own just a lot of bad luck uh the Blue Jays can't out can't outscore that even though they should be able to as you give up two runs you should be able to win the game and then everybody's frustrated by that and then the Shohei Otani thing happens and hope builds and then it gets dashed uh, some erroneous reports contribute to that, uh, and build up this hype and leads to uh, a lot of disappointment the next day when he chooses the Dodgers. And then there's nothing else that matches that for the Blue Jays to do this offseason, like not even close. There's nothing even remotely on that level. And so you've gone from, you know, a team of opportunity with a great pitching staff loses in terrible fashion in the postseason, uh, frustrating to watch because they can't score. Raise your hopes on Shohei Otani, don't get them. And then it's so far Isaiah Kiner Falefa and Kevin Kiermeyer, and that's your offseason. And so that like who could blame a fan for being frustrated about that? Right. Now, it doesn't mean that the Blue Jays are a bad team. They're still starting from a very good place, but it's hard to see the good when you're just frustrated by so much and caring so much. So I can completely understand why. You know, Blue Jay fans may feel frustrated or are uh, displeased with the way things have gone. I can tell you that, uh, you know, that a lot of people around the organization, too, were very frustrated by last year. Last year was very difficult uh, on the organization on a number of levels. And we're going to see whether they're able to do enough. And I think the, the changes that they've made from a coaching and process perspective are going to be really important. Um, 
And then we'll see whether they did enough or or can do enough to the roster uh, between now and spring training uh, to get a bit more offense there and unlock some of the the offensive ability that exists on the club. This has been great, Shai. Really appreciate it. Uh, I do have one more question for you, and it's, it just relays, uh, you know, builds on what you've been talking about here. I know there was a lot of Zoom meetings uh, uh, on the day we're shooting here uh, with various people from the organization. I, I'm just curious. What do they do now? Because it feels like it's just scramble mode after the Otani thing collapsed. And is there still some options out there for them in terms of, like, I've heard a couple of different players' names linked to the Blue Days. Do you see them being able to still maybe bring somebody in and try to make this team better? Yeah, I think they'll add at least one more bat, maybe two. Uh, Ross Atkins, when we spoke to us today, said it was probably going to be one, but I can see scenarios where it's still two bats that they're adding as well. And I think they're, they're trying to get an offense first player at this point. And, uh, you know, I think one person that they're, you know, they're, they're working on, and I think they've got a real shot with is Jock Peterson, a uh, left-handed hitter uh, who uh, fans may remember helping Atlanta win the world series a couple of years ago with the Dodgers before that giants past couple of years. He's someone that the Blue Jays have had interest in, in the past and it hasn't lined up, but he would sort of fit the mold of what they need. Uh, they have some interest in JD Martinez. Uh, there's Justin Turner. Uh, there's Reese Hoskins. There's still some bat first options out there. And right now this is just, it's just been a really weird off season where everything is moving so slow. At first it was moving slow because of Otani. Then it was Yamamoto. Uh, now it's the Scott Boris portion of the off season. So he's working to place his different clients with everyone else. And he wants to make sure that he's maintaining as much leverage for his clients, but with the order in which he signs them. So, uh, you know, the, the pacing of it may be frustrating. I know that for fans, it's frustrating for clubs. It's not ideal uh, for players. It's definitely not ideal, uh, but, here we are doing this song and dance, which, you know, seemed like the past couple of off seasons we were maybe through, but now we're back at it in baseball again. Uh, but the Blue Jays can still add some thump. Uh, you know, Otani was the one transformative move they could make this winter. That one didn't happen. Everything else is more short-term patches, but done well, you can put together just the right ingredients to your mix and allow the allow your club to be successful. And so that's where the Blue Jays are right now, trying to add the right ingredients and hoping that it creates uh, a better hole, a more complete hole than the one they had last season. Guy, really appreciate the insights and the stories. Love the uh, 2010 stuff in particular. That was great. Uh, thanks for making time for us today and joining us on The Riser. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. Uh, those were some great times. 2010, 2018 with Teddy as well. Those were some uh, fun Olympics. Uh, hope to get another one of those down the road. It'd be fun to to relive some of those uh, experiences in, in another town. So uh, glad to join you guys. All right, Ted. Well, that was enjoyable with Shy. Great guest. Great insight. I really enjoyed his uh, his stories. What what did you make of the Davidi appearance? <laughs> it's always great to have a guy like Shy on because he's just got so much experience in the business. He's got a, so many great stories to tell, and he's such a, a, a knowledgeable person, particularly about the Major League Baseball and the Blue Jays. It's just, you know, it's a it's a real treat to be able to have a guy like that to come on here and 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 help and and speak with us on this show. And um, I love, honestly, uh, even as soon as we went off the air, we were talking about stories about times at the Olympics with him and um, various other uh, run-ins, and it's always been a good time. So really good to have him on here. All around good guy. 
SHD, Shai Davidi. And now we're going to shift to hot topics, Ted, and the PWHL. The puck finally dropped on the new league on New Year's Day. What were your takeaways from day one of this new league? Really liked the production. I thought that it was a pretty impressive that uh, Sportsnet, TSN, CBC all came together. They all showed the, showed the game, the very first game between Toronto and New York. They had the all-female uh, panel that was set up. Uh, there was an all-female broadcast team with my friend Danielle, Daniela Ponticelli calling the games, which is pretty exciting for her. And then the game itself, well, it's going to take some viewers time to get used to the differences between women's hockey and men's hockey. And I mean, these teams aren't Canada, USA. They're, you know, they're, they're a little bit smaller portions of those teams that are involved. So, um, you know, it'll take some time, I think, for people to warm up to the speed, but honestly, they talked to some of the people I talked to before the games, there was a lot of excitement about the physicality that was going to be allowed in this league. And I thought it was outstanding in that sense. There was, you know, it's not, they're not supposed to be body checking, but, you know, you can lean into a, a shoulder into a person a little bit here and there. And it was happening and it gave some real excitement to the game. Um, and then I thought more so the second game that was played in Ottawa on uh, Tuesday night where they set a pro or a record for a women's hockey game for attendance with uh, 8,500 fans or so, something like that. Uh, and and an overtime game, real excitement. It's just, it's so nice, I think, to see the women's game getting some attention and for them to be handling it as well as they have. They they plan this out in a fairly quick amount of time. They only got started last June. They had a draft. They got everything going. Yeah, they don't have logos. They don't have official team nicknames. But they all talked about how that can come later. The most important thing was getting a product on the ice. So good on women's hockey in my opinion how about you greg yes i agree i'm stunned that they were able to get this in such a short lead up i mean what was it six months between the formative stages being you know the foundation being laid and then boom to puck drop there's a lot of lifting over those six months to get everything set up we're talking rule book television deals player drafts like all this stuff and they managed to get it done so full marks on that front and like you ted i thought the day like i watched the uh, the opening game i thought it was really slick the production looked great um really nice job i thought and the hockey was pretty good too and then i agree the the ottawa game the intensity the chippiness was there it was uh it was great it was good old-fashioned hockey which is uh you know what hockey fans want i think the one thing i really like about the pwhl is the format for points where it's three, two, one, zero. I think the NHL would be well served to look at that sure. model. Reward the regulation win. Um, what else? Yeah, the chippiness I like. I mean, if I agree, you know, the logos, the the team names, they'll come with time. It'd be, it would have been great, but you know, by all accounts, fans were satisfied. It was a great opening few days here. And let's hope the momentum keeps going here. Uh, I do have some concerns about the Toronto market. I I think it's a Maple Leaf city in many ways. And I don't know how invested they get in other teams. Certainly the Marlies don't seem to be moving the needle too much. Um, You know, it'll be interesting to see whether the PWHL Toronto team, at least in this city, whether they can really catch on in a market that really, I think, loves its Leafs. I mean, maybe you've noticed that in Winnipeg too, where the the minor league hockey, do, do the fans get into it as much? Well, they do because it's a cheaper ticket. And I mean, 
the the moose have been the manitoba moose have been established in winnipeg for a very long time um they were here before the jets came back and then they were brought back by the ownership not too long later and so they they do okay but um you know the jets are king obviously and uh, and as the leafs are king and in toronto and, and this actually gives a nice segue because i did want to keep the hockey talk going and just talk a little bit about the Winnipeg Jets, the Vancouver Canucks, two teams that are over 50 points right now, right at the top of the NHL standings not, and, and are just having outstanding seasons. Coach Rick Tockett in Vancouver doing an amazing job. Rick Bonus in Winnipeg doing an outstanding job. Winnipeg, 26 games where they've given up less or three goals or less. They've got points in nine straight games. They've given up only two goals in most of those games at most. And they're averaging almost four goals a game. So they're going to be incredibly hard to beat if they keep playing like that. And the Canucks have been even better, really, right from the very start of the season. So I want, I wonder, Greg, is this the year? You know, I mean, can Canada finally get a Stanley Cup winner? It's, it, it's, it's, the odds are long because there's so many good teams also in the U.S. But it's pretty good to get into the new year with a couple of teams from Canada right near the top. For sure. And I'd argue, you know, that the Canucks and the Jets are, you know, it's fairly surprising that they've been this strong. I think, you know, solid seasons were expected, but nothing quite like this. Uh, the Canucks full marks to Rick Tockett, who has really done a fantastic job with the team that is, I mean, it looks like an offensive juggernaut over there. I mean, how many guys in the top 10 in scoring do they have? There were three when I last looked. Pretty impressive. And then the Jets, I mean, I was fortunate enough to cover the Jets in the first round of the playoffs last spring. And that looked like a broken team Had flashes of good play. I think they won the opener against Vegas, but, you know, just talking to the Winnipeg writers, they're like, oh, lucky to get in like this. This did not look like an actual playoff team. And one had to wonder at that point what the future would hold in a, you know, for a, a team that had a few free agent question marks, um, you know, whether the, the players they got back in trades were going to actually gel and respond. And boy, oh boy, it has been a fantastic season in Winnipeg. What's it been like for you to, to see that uh, uh, that team do so well? I, well, I mean, they honestly, they were almost this good last year up till this point, and then they had a big swoon. So everybody's still holding judgment just to make sure that that doesn't happen again. But it doesn't seem like it. This is different. This is, you know, stifling defensive hockey and four lines of uh, of. of of players that are contributing offensively, really good puck moving defense, and maybe the number one goalie in the league again in Connor Hellebuck. I don't think that swoon's going to be coming. And uh, and so, yeah, it's been, obviously, it's very interesting when that happens. I got to cover them in 2018 when they made it to the Western Conference Final, and it was, you know, it was an exciting time for the city. Um, and, you know, it's it's not that, uh, that Winnipeg, I think, has... Uh, added so much this year it's more what they dropped because having Blake Wheeler who was the longtime captain of that team out of the locker room I think has been a, a good thing for the Winnipeg Jets and I think probably taking Pierre-Luc Dubois out of the locker room has had a similar effect because he didn't want to be here Wheeler did he was a longtime loyal guy to the Winnipeg Jets but I think his voice had just become stale and not really progressive uh, within that locker room. And I think it was important to get somebody else. Now they have Adam Lowry as captain. I think it's making a real difference. So uh, obviously, other than the Jets and Canucks, the Leafs are in playoff position right now. They certainly haven't had the same kind of um, exciting start to the season, though. They've got goaltending problems. 
the last time I looked, they had only 13 regulation and overtime wins. And that's the same number as the last place Ottawa Senators. So they're not really, you know, not setting the world on fire by any means, but you'd still expect them to be a playoff team. And and, and then, you know, the, the Oilers, Flames, Canadians, and Senators are right now out of the playoff rate, out of the spot. But, man, I think the Oilers are going to be in there, man. They've won six games in a row. They've got Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. That's a team that, uh, you know, could be just building towards greatness uh, towards the end of the season and into the playoffs. I agree. I think the Edmonton Oilers are a scary team. And, yes, they've had their uh, peaks and valleys here in the early going, but they are going to be a force, I think, in 2024. Obviously, have made some changes, and they look to be on track. We'll see if they can continue that. And then, yes, I'm in the Toronto area, and uh, boy, whenever there's a, a netminder that uh, that gets the yips, if you will, it's uh, front page news in the sports section here. And that, of course, happened with Ilya Samsonov, who was demoted to the Toronto Marlies, uh, cleared waivers, and yeah, is I mean, who would have thought Martin Jones would be your number one goalie here in 2024? It's going to be a few more weeks before uh, Joseph Wall's back in action. He's got a high ankle sprain. But uh, the Maple Leafs are, I think, pretty much what they are, who we thought they were at this point. You know, a team that, you know, may, you know, probably in the playoff mix, probably more towards the bottom of of the, you know, the playoff teams. But certainly, I think, has the potential to to get there. And once they do, they they certainly have the firepower to go deep. And a, a really solid year from William Nylander. Austin Matthews has been filling the back of the net. And I think they've done pretty well considering the injuries on the back line so far. So I think for Canadian NHL fans, there's uh, plenty to look forward to as we get into the meat and potatoes of the regular season. Absolutely. And I just want to shift gears with another hot topic. And this one just came across our desk today on the day that we're shooting. That's that uh, Nolan Thiessen has been named the uh, new CEO of Curling Canada. He replaces Catherine Henderson, who did the job for a long time, but moved on to Hockey Canada. And Nolan is a really interesting person to take that job because his real background is curling. He was a, a world champion curler, a Briar champion curler for years. And then he kind of has spent uh, the last uh, five, six, seven years getting involved in, uh, in the management side of things with Curling Canada. And then he ends up now being named the CEO. I think it's really positive for the sport of curling that not only do they now have a player in Nolan Thiessen at the very top as CEO, but they've got David Murdoch, who is a world champion and Olympic medalist out of Scotland as their high performance director. And they've got Laura Walker, who is currently still an active player sitting on the board of governors for Curling Canada. Um, a lot of people calling on Curling Canada to make positive changes and and need and, and and start at that level to start building Canada back up as a curling superpower. And I think those moves are going to do that. What are your thoughts on uh, Nolan being signed on? Yeah, it was interesting. I saw that news release a few hours ago, and I thought if they were going to promote from within that Nolan would be the guy. Um, but I was also intrigued as to whether or not they would have an external person come in and, and handle that CEO job. Um, because that would be interesting to see where they would take curling and whether they would really make that big change that I think the sport needs. Um, not that Nolan can't do that. Uh, he's certainly well-versed in all things curling and is, of course, very familiar with all the stakeholders given his long playing career. He knows most of the players, of course, and knows the stakeholders from his time with the Federation where he served in a, in a variety of roles. 
what's interesting is that he previously served, he handled like marketing fan experience as well. And I think that's one interesting area when it comes to curling in this country anyway, where they have some major work to do. I think we've touched on this in the past in our conversations, but I really think curling is kind of, it's, it's stuck in the past in many ways. And when you compare it to the current sports, um, obviously it's a lot different than the NHL or the NBA or MLB, what have you, but you're still asking a sports fan to invest their money in a two and a half hour experience. And in my opinion, the fan experience is somewhat lacking. So we'll see if Nolan at the top has a vision for that. And of course there are a host of other issues uh, Ted on the on the curling Canada stove. What's uh, aside from fan experience and and getting to the top of the podium? Are there are there hot button issues that you think Nolan should try to tackle out of the gate here as he settles in? Well, it's interesting, uh, Greg. Last week I talked to Brad Gushu for my year end piece for Post Media, and he said curling needs a good kick in the butt, and he meant it in terms of across the world. And you know, I asked him to ex- to expand on that. And I asked Nolan about it today, and they both had similar answers. And it's about who you're marketing the game to in terms of trying to recruit players. It's about who you're marketing to the game to in terms of fan experience and, uh, and, and people coming to the games and, and watching on television. I mean, that's a, it's all older. I mean, the players, the, the teams that are successful are all older teams. There's very little opportunity for younger teams to break into that elite level in Canada. And the people who watch the games are older. It's not that they're not a good market for the game. Of course they are, but you've got to figure out some way to market it to a different audience, to younger audiences, to people with ethnic diverse backgrounds, with all kinds of things like that. And I believe that's what he thinks is the number one priority. He talked about youth development, and I see that as being the way that it will go. And, and it really did sound like he had a lot of, uh, agreement with what Brad Gushu had to say, although I doubt uh, a new CEO is going to use quite those terms like kick in the butt. Uh, you're going to get that from Brad, who's always uh, very outspoken. So uh, I, I think I see that being, a, you know, I think this is all looking like a very positive thing. And, you know, they got to work on some stuff. There's uh, not enough, in my opinion, um, good Canadian teams right now. There's only like six getting in each of the Grand Slams on the men's and women's. And then the rest of the teams, there's not a lot of places for them to play to get uh, points. And it's just it's just kind of it's disjointed and then right from the grassroots all the way up to the top. But these are the kind of situations where they're building on it. And I know you probably have more curling to talk about, Greg, but I did want to just make sure we got a couple more hot topics in here. I hope that's OK. Uh, World Junior Hockey, Canada loses out in, uh, in, in a late goal, a late bouncing puck goal to uh, the Czech Republic um, in the quarterfinal at the World Junior. No medal there. A team that only had one returning player. No Connor Bedard, obviously. No Zach Benson. There's other a lot of uh, eligible players who could have been there and weren't. And they lose. And sometimes that leads to a lot of hand-wringing in this country. Personally, I'm not sure I see it this time. It's just they played a good team and the other team won in a one-game situation. What were your thoughts on it? Exactly. It's one game. It can go either way. The, the talent is is there now. It's it's a, the parity when it comes to the World Juniors is really off the charts. And I think Canada, you're right. One returning player that that doesn't help. Not having Connor Bedard in the lineup doesn't help. Uh, that being said, you know they had a pretty solid team. 
and they ran into a hot club in in the checks and and they uh and they lost so i agree with you i i don't think it's uh we don't need a hockey summit or anything like that i think it's very similar to curling in that you know once in a while you have like a, a curling team like carrie anderson's team or name the team they get to a world championship and they may not make the final three i think that's kind of what happened here with the world juniors same thing just didn't get it done on the stage uh it's going to happen and i'm you know i think with the field as strong as it is i don't think that's a big big surprise yeah it just makes you i personally feel a little bit of sadness for those players and when you see you know they 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 put so much into it and they put so much into wearing the maple leaf and to you know to get knocked out uh in that situation is no, nowhere near close to what they were expecting. You saw a lot of families there, you know, that are saying, Oh, you know, we, we paid to come all the way over here and we're, and we're so excited for what our sons might be able to do. And, and, you know, it's pretty disappointing for them, but regardless, uh, I think there's plenty of, plenty of bright future as always in that sport for Canada. And, hey man, I got another one. I really been wanting to talk about. This is the last one for me on the hot topics, but uh, the the Canadian Press Male Athlete of the Year and the Northern Star Award uh, awarded by the Toronto Sun both went to basketball player Shea Gilgis Alexander. He still, still can never say his name right. Um, and and he had a great season. You know, he's a great basketball player, and he did have a great season. And I'm not really discounting that. I mean, it's a vote, and that's the way it goes. But honestly, how come in this country? We don't vote or give more credence to what our hockey players do. Connor McDavid won the Hart Trophy. He won the he led the league in goals, assists, points. He had as many points as anybody not named Yager or Lemieux or Gretzky in the history of the league. He had an incredible year and 150 points in total in 2023. And yet he's not the winner of that award. And I just wonder if. You might agree with me, or if you want to take me to task on what I'm saying, that hockey players seem to get knocked down a, a notch in voters' uh, minds just because Canadians are supposed to be good at hockey. Yes, I think that might be the case. And I think when it comes to the award winners, if it's something new, if it's something fresh, if it's something we're not used to, then that sometimes will get that extra little voting bump. And I wasn't in the, wasn't in the room for the Toronto Stars Northern Star Award voting uh but i obviously familiar with the cp awards and sga won i believe by one vote over mcdavid and that's in a vote of broadcasters and, and sports editors across the country so very close uh connor mcdavid and then of course nick taylor who delivered what i would argue is the canadian sports moment of the year with that putt that won the canadian open finished in third uh when it comes to sga I mean, obviously a great season with the Oklahoma City Thunder, first team all NBA. You know, he's he's a superstar in that league. We do not have, it's a rarity for a Canadian to get to that level in that league. But what I think may have tipped him just ahead of, of McDavid a little bit was the performance at the FIBA World Cup. It was such a key cog in the Canadian team qualifying for the Olympics for the first time since 2000. And getting onto the World Cup podium, knocking off the United States in a thriller to do it, getting that bronze medal, uh, believe the first time since 1936 or something ridiculous, because the World Cup is the old world championship. So it hasn't happened in forever. SGA is a big reason why they got over the hump. They're going to Paris in the summer. And I, I think it's a nice choice. McDavid had an amazing season, but I think that's one of those ones that really is a coin flip at the end of the day. 
it's a pretty good argument, Greg. I gotta say, uh, I just had a little bee in my bonnet about it. That's okay. But uh, honestly, the one and the one other thing I just want to say about McDavid is he is the best player in the world. It's not questioned. Connor McDavid or Connor Bedard might beat him out in not too long of a time, but right now it is Connor McDavid. And I don't know that SGA is the best player in the world. So that's, you know, and, and I think in 2023, Connor McDavid was the best player in the world. So that's just, you know, I, it was a close vote. So it's, and it's all fair. So all good. But I do hope that down the road, Canadian hockey players get a little bit more love from the voters. Well, Ted, let's just follow up on that a little bit. The team of the year award by the Canadian press was also really tight one. If you could pick one team, who would it be this year? I'm putting you on the spot. Oh, man. Wow. And that World Junior team uh, from the very beginning of uh, of 2023 won the gold medal. So they, they ended it not so well, but they sure started it well. And that was a great one. Um, that Davis Cup team, uh, or sorry, not Davis Cup, the Billie Jean Cup team, the, te- the women's tennis. Incredible. That FIBA basketball team. That's pretty incredible, too. And as the team I mentioned before, Montreal Alouettes. It, that's there's a lot there but i gotta i would always pick um i think uh, you know i think teams that win world championships or major things like that are the ones that i'm going to go with so for me it would either be the tennis or the or the uh ho- the the junior hockey team but i i really did feel like the montreal alouettes were a great story i think you nailed the top four in the in the voting there it went to the uh to the men's basketball team and they barely beat the women's team that won the Billie Jean King Cup for the first time in Canadian history. That's, uh, of course, on the heels of uh, the Davis Cup win from the men a year earlier. So great times for uh, for tennis and great times for basketball. We'll see what happens at the Paris Olympics. And, of course, the World Junior team from a year ago would have been a great pick as well. That really uh, Canadian sports fans across the country really got into that, of course. Connor Bedard. Like in curling, we can't win any medals. Like we're supposed to be the best in the world in curling. We don't win any medals. And in hockey, no Canadian team has won the cup since 1993. But then look how well we're doing in tennis and basketball. And swimming. And swimming, yeah. It's a little Summer Macintosh, you know, CP female athlete of the year. The landscape of of any color of medal has changed a little bit uh, in, in terms of sports in this country. Well, let's put a bow here on episode two, Ted, and go with some all-timers, some uh, stories from yesteryear in the business. What uh, what have you got picked out for us this week, Ted? <laughs> well, uh, I'm man, I'm going to save a couple. I've written down a nice list here, and I've got a few that I really like, but I want to tell a funny one today. Um, this was uh, quite a few years ago. I can't remember what year it was, but I was on a road trip covering the Winnipeg Jets out to... Uh, Pittsburgh and I think Montreal, Toronto. Ended up back in Toronto on the way back on a layover and I was at the airport and I was uh, having a a cold uh, beverage at one of the bars there at Pearson in Terminal 1 and um, in walks I saw walking into the bar Paul Coffey. So um, there was and then there was two guys with them and then they were wearing Jets jerseys and so I kind of like you know, I thought that's kind of neat. He's having beers with these, uh, having a couple of beers with these uh, guys in Jets jerseys. So I thought that was pretty cool. And I watched them interacting and chatting. And then uh, the, the flight got called and it, all of us were going to Winnipeg. Paul Coffey was on his way to Winnipeg for a Mike Keen uh, uh, tournament of some sort uh, appearance. I can't remember exactly what. And um, he, so he 
disappeared for a minute. These two guys come walking towards me and I go, hey, guys, like, that was pretty cool. What what was it like meeting Paul Coffey? And they went, we didn't know who he was. <laughs> so apparently they uh, were with him for about two hours chatting and telling stories. And he was telling stories and they were asking him stuff, but they didn't realize it was him. And then Paul came out of uh, where he, you know, wherever he had gone, he comes towards the um, towards the gate. And I stopped over to say hi to him because I had actually met him at the Heritage Classic in Winnipeg not too long before that. And I said, I said, so uh, how was it meeting with those guys? And he says, they didn't know who I was. <laughs> and he said, they, uh, they, 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 uh, he, he finally was like, guys, you know, do you remember any really great defensemen on the Oilers from back in the eighties? And they were like, oh, Kevin Lowe? Oh, no, no, no. Charlie Huddy? And one guy goes, oh, Paul Coffey. And he goes, that's me. <laughs> that's great. So I love that story. It made me laugh. And Paul was a great sport about it. And, uh, you know, it's one to remember for years. Well, Ted, my uh, my all timer, if you will, is going back about eight years or so to the 2015 Pan American Games, which were held in Toronto. And of course, the number one rule when you're in a press box, there's no cheering. You don't cheer in the press box. Well, unless you're covering a, a FIFA World Cup, I've seen it happen at uh, at the 07 World Cup. I see them sometimes at Major League Soccer games. You'll see the odd cheer. You'll see the odd fist pump. But at the Pan Am Games in 2015, this was next level. I was covering a field hockey final involving Canada. I don't remember if it was the men or the women. Uh, downtown at the U of T, University of Toronto campus. I covered the game and I'm pecking away at the keyboard, uh, trying to finish my right through. And then the next final starts, either the men's or the women's, it starts. And these... Uh, media members, we'll, we'll use media loosely, come in wearing full kit from Argentina or wherever it was, full kit. They've got beverages, they've got noisemakers, and they are they are into it. They're pumping their fists. They're going crazy in the press box with media cred on. It was next level. I had a hard time concentrating on my second version of the story because I was so intrigued at these so-called media members who were there for a good rocking time to cheer on their country. I didn't see any laptops. It was very unusual. Uh, I'm not sure what they were doing, but uh, that was my one of my all-timers. One of the uh, one of the the funny moments from uh, covering a variety of sports over the career. Field hockey, 2015 Pan Am Games. And I think you and I actually covered a field hockey game together in Rio at the Olympics. I seem to recall that. So uh, yes, that's right. It was one of those ones where uh, you show up and uh, and it's like, uh, give me a, a media guide in a few minutes and I can write about this sport, even though I really don't know anything about it. But you actually were a bit of an expert on it. So I, I appreciated having you there. Far from it. I think the uh, the Pan Ams was, was my first time covering it. And uh, very cool sport. I mean, oof. I thought, uh, you know, we cover athletes. Many of them are like in crazy physical shape but field hockey wow are they like <laughs> they're machines a lot of running a lot of power so very cool ted this has been a pleasure our thanks to shy davidi from sportsnet also like to thank producer alex and the crew at toronto metropolitan university the podcast lab there and hey this is great let's do it again soon ted for uh for episode three looking forward to the next one can't wait. It's been a blast. Awesome to have Shy here and great to see you, my friend. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Alex.